An episode of the Global Research News Hour airing on June 16th, 2023, was actually, in a way, faked. The original audio I recorded left out one of the speakers due to his inadequate computer, so we had to re- quickly repeat the questions and put them to him a second time. However, the company I was using to record the audio managed to somehow retrieve the original sound, so this week I will be resurrecting the original interview as it was meant to air. So here it is. Enjoy. This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are finally turning our attention to possibly the greatest revolution in technological advances since the creation of the first atomic bomb, that being in the field of artificial intelligence, a new technology that will soon make life without it as productive as life without computers, will change dramatically the way we live, and we will spend this hour focused on what those changes will potentially look like. Winnipeg-based Hal Sharif and acclaimed Canadian science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer join me to discuss artificial intelligence, the good, the bad, and the really ugly. On this week's program, The Fourth Industrial Revolution Part 1, The Future of AI, The Past of Homo Sapiens, bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 16th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojukri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We attempt to restore balance to the treaties and agreements that secured control for settlers at the expense of indigenous people and will make the utmost effort to repay for centuries of losses according to a respectful vision. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Since the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the culture war on serving dishes with a Russian name, be it with hint, flavor, or substance, has been total. Hatred of the Kremlin has become bigotry towards the dish, in Madrid, Sergei Skorovatov, himself Ukrainian and an owner of a restaurant called Rasputin, serving both Russian and Ukrainian cuisine, sensed trouble. He ventured into the thorny world of online discussions to clarify the nature of what he was serving, which was considered wise given what has happening to other restaurants serving 
Russian fare. This method of insurance was not foolproof. That comes from the article Dumpling Wars by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted June 14th. Although I do not fully agree with Henry Wallace's arguments, I find his speeches inspiring and think they offer us great potential at this dangerous moment in history. There is also an argument to be made that another world was possible that did not include the Cold War of the 1950s or the Cold War of 2023. The Second Cold War works on the basic principle that, quote, Cold Wars repeat first as tragedy and again as farce, unquote. The first speech of 1946 was the one that led to President Truman demanding his resignation. The second speech of 1947 was made once he had positioned himself in explicit opposition to the Truman administration. Wallace suggests a, quote, competition of ideas, unquote, for mutual benefit that has strong appeal for us today. That comes from the article, quote, We want peace, the world cries out, unquote, Henry Wallace, by Emmanuel Pastriche, posted June 15th. As a psychologist and longtime psychotherapist, I am convinced that man is good, social, and capable of living together without weapons and war. However, he is psychologically irritated due to his manipulation in family upbringing and by social institutions. Only a manipulated human being is capable of inflicting suffering on his fellow human beings. Wars, terrorist actions, kidnapping of children and renting them to pedophiles, organ trafficking, depopulation programs, displacement, population exchange, falsification of history, and so on and so forth. Inflicting violence and torment on one's fellow human beings or marching off and striking when the state calls to arms is not the result of free will. That comes from the article, Only a manipulated human inflicts suffering on members of the same species by Dr. Rudolf Hansel, posted June 15th. While Carrie's health is fragile, she remains firm in her incisive understanding and analysis of world events committed to national sovereignty and fundamental human rights. She constitutes a powerful voice in the understanding and analysis of U.S. hegemony and the global political economy. Her first book, published in 1970, entitled Silent Surrender, the Multinational Corporation in Canada, predicted with foresight more than half a century ago what is happening today. Quote, First published in 1970, Silent Surrender helped educate a generation of students about a Canadian political economy. Carrie Pollyanni Levitt details the historical background of foreign investments in Canada, their 
acceleration since World War II and the nature of intrusions by multinational corporations into a sovereign state, unquote. That was from the Global Research Update under the headline, Professor Kerry Poliani Levitt, Regaining Canada's Sovereignty, June 14, 2023, We Celebrate Kerry's 100th Birthday, by Kerry Poliani Levitt and Michael Welch, posted June 14. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of ChatGPT? Yes, absolutely, Michael. You know, it's actually a fascinating story. ChatGPT is an AI, or artificial intelligence model, developed by an organization named OpenAI. It was trained using a technique called machine learning, specifically a method called transformer neural networks. Essentially, it's like it's been reading a vast amount of text from the internet to learn how to understand and generate human language. It's a bit like a supercharged version of predictive text on your phone when you text people, but much more advanced. So when did this technology start to come about? Well, OpenAI has been around for a while, but the specific model that ChatGPT is based on called GPT-4, which is the latest, was first released in 2022, and people started using it a lot in February of this year. Since then, it's been evolving and improving every day. I think it's exciting because it's a testament to how far AI has really come with hundreds of millions of people using it. But remember, it's not perfect. It doesn't understand context in the same way a human does. So there are always areas to improve and grow. And how does it learn? Great question, Michael. It's trained on a vast corpus of text, basically books, websites, and all kinds of written material. The model looks for patterns in this data and uses these to predict what should come next in a sentence. That's why it can sometimes come up with such eerily accurate responses. It's learned from a huge amount of data. It's important to note, though, it doesn't understand the information like you or I would. It's a pattern recognizer, not a conscious being. That's a lot to take in, but quite fascinating. Absolutely, Michael. It's fascinating to see where we're headed with AI technology. We're really in the thick of it, and the applications for this technology seem to be endless. Okay, I think we should just uh, just draw the line here. Uh, actually, what we've been just discussing, that wasn't an actual interview. That was a script we were reading written by artificial intelligence, by chat GBT, GPT. So um, this is the real part of the interview now. And uh, I'm going to be joined by uh, a couple of uh, very distinguished guests. It's going to be a, a very different uh, kind of uh, topic today because... Uh, I'm going to be introducing two, uh, you know, very special guests that uh, you know, are not necessarily that acquainted with uh, the show. Um, but uh, my guests, uh, first uh, I've got 
both Cal Sharif, who was just speaking, and I've also got Robert J. Sawyer. And I, I'm just going to take a, a couple of minutes to introduce them both. Uh, Cal Sharif is the founder and CEO of Project White Card, a company dedicated to using technology for good. They use game technology for education, and the latest project is all about driver training in BC, uh, where Project White Card is using AI extensively during development. And, and here's the way ChatGPT described it. They're creatively harnessing the power of gaming technology, transforming it into an educational tool. Imagine that. Learning while playing. It's a game changer. And their latest endeavor? Well, it's all about making the roads safer in British Columbia. Project White Card is at the forefront using artificial intelligence like never before in their new driver training initiative. It's technology and education colliding in the most exciting way, proving once again, folks, that the future of learning is right here in our grasp. And I will also add, <clears throat> this is me talking, that uh, Cal Sharif is a former classmate of mine going back over 40 years. Oh, and dear. Yes. And he's also a former programmer at CKUW uh, here uh, back in the 1980s. Um, so it, it's a special delight to have him on the show finally. And also, <clears throat> I'm extremely delighted to have with us Robert J. Sawyer. He's an accomplished science fiction writer, originally from Ottawa, now living in Mississauga, Ontario. He's one of only eight writers in history and, and the only Canadian to receive all three of the World Science Fiction Awards for Best Novel of the Year, uh, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, and the first writer in history to win the Right Lifetime Achievement uh, Aurora Award. He's, uh, he's soon to release his um, 25th novel, the, the Downloader, and that's not even including his multiple works for short fiction. He's a scriptwriter and a keynote speaker. He's the number one all-time leader in number of award nominations as a science fiction or fantasy novelist. Stephen King is number two. Uh, without question, multiple press organizations have said he is the, the leading Canadian science fiction writer. And uh, so we're quite pleased to have him on the program to, to tackle the latest tsunami hitting the world right now, that, that being artificial intelligence. This was the main theme running through a trilogy on the topic that he wrote back about 10 years ago. Both my guests are not exactly trained in the field of artificial intelligence, but their fields of interest have kept them up to date with, with the field and, and, and can turn it over to explore what is potentially coming as the field expands. So, so Cal and, and Robert, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Um, uh, maybe maybe I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with you, Cal. Um, could you just talk a, a little bit more about how AI has impacted your work since it was introduced? Well, it's amazingly uh, uh, fast uh, that AI ha has evolved in the last year, less than a year. So I, I started using AI last August, in fact. Um, and at first I was using it to help with my writing. Um, I called it AI because other than simply using a tool like Grammarly to help with my spelling and so on, I'm sure Robert J. Sawyer knows about that one, uh, I started using it to actually author, for example, grant requests. Not the entire grant request, but to give me some framework that was useful. Uh, a lot of what we do 
uh, is not grants. Some of what we do is grants, but a lot of communication that we do uh, has to do with uh, speaking directly to clients or, or bodies of people that are judging our work. So, uh, And then in February, I started using uh, a lot of AI. I have been working on driver training in British Columbia uh, for the last uh, three years. Very lucky to be able to do that out of Winnipeg. And uh, we were chosen by TELUS and BC to take on that work. And we started without any access to AI. But what I found is that AI has really sped up my process of writing, uh, for example, scripts. How does an instructor interact with a driver? What are some of the types of uh, scenarios that an instructor uh, or, or that a driver might encounter on a road? And how would they best be instructed? Now, I don't, now I don't leave the AI as the AI is not uh, is not the ends to those uh, to that to that writing. The AI is sort of like a middle ground or a seed of ideas, and also cleans up your spelling, which is really helpful. I then will pass off uh, full scripts, pages and pages and pages to uh, to subject matter experts for uh, for verification and validation, and uh, that's that's how I've used AI in textual aspects of, of, of what I do. In, in visualization, I use a lot of AI. One of the projects I'm working on is, is something that has to do with large Macs because I keep a, I keep, always keep a, um, a hand in my other work, which is to sort of do sort of science fiction works of games uh, that are also educational. And I'm working on a game that has large Macs and I want to see uh, what kind of mech I might like to depict in my game. So using a written, you know, handwritten um, sort of query uh, in an AI art generator, I was quickly able to generate not 10, not 100, but maybe thousands of sort of images of which I could get closer and closer to what a beautiful looking mech in my game would look like if a mech originated in 1972 and uh, then hand that over to my artist and say, this is where, this is the zone uh, where we'd like to be for this art. So it's uh, literally to be able to do that uh, uh, with a game company, generally, I'll, I'll just use numbers, it generally cost you about uh, a lot. I won't use numbers, a lot. You need to have about 100 people on staff to generate this much kind, this this much art. And now we're able to do that with 10 uh, of the size of a company that we have 10 to, to uh, 20 staff. So I think, yeah, the tsunami that you spoke about, Michael, is, is, is that, and that if you can harness that technology, uh, that, uh, uh, that I think it's going to be very useful. Okay. Robert J. J. Sawyer, uh, thank you for waiting. Uh, you're, uh, You've uh, written, of course, uh, your your famous uh, trilogy, uh, WWW, uh, Wake, Watch, and Wonder. Uh, all three of them won an Aurora Award. So, you know, you really raised, you know, you took the topic of artificial intelligence and, and raised it to new levels. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, maybe just give us a bit of a rundown of what you came up with back then. And maybe today, as, as chat GBT, GPT has come out, uh, if uh, that advances your own understanding of the situation, I mean, because everybody that I'm hearing about in, in regular media is saying that it's it's moving a lot faster than than anybody else uh, had come about. They didn't expect things to come along as fast as it has. So, you know, I'll, I'll just let you open it sure. up. Uh, 
Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is at least on, since you mentioned new levels, and since you're right, I'm not trained in artificial intelligence. I'm trained in radio broadcasting. Michael's levels, or sorry, uh, Cal's levels were awfully low on that early part. You might want to adjust his volume level a bit on your input there. Uh, now, to the point, I disagree that a lot of people didn't know this was coming or that it was going to happen so quickly. In fact, this is the most frustrating thing about being a science fiction writer, is that we have been talking about the fact that artificial intelligence is right on our doorstep for a very long time, and that when it arrives, it will exponentially uh, explode into the world. Werner Vinge uh, was the person who really originally popularized the term the singularity for this explosion. And uh, of course, Ray Kurzweil, who is a, uh, uh, a futurist uh, employed now by Google, uh, has really pushed the concept. But it's so frustrating to hear over and over again from journalists, oh, nobody saw this coming. Oh, who knew it would be so quick? When science fiction has been saying, get ready for this day. In fact, I got my start as a science fiction uh, fan seeing the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, when it first came out in 1968. I was uh, eight years old when I saw it. And um, they were saying in that movie that by 2001, which guess what, is 22 years ago, we would have really sophisticated AI. And in fact, if you listen to the dialogue, uh, birthday is the 12th of January, 1992. They were saying 31 years ago, we might have all of this. And okay, it took longer to arrive than Arthur C. Clarke or Stanley Kubrick thought. But the fact that it was going to be in our lifetimes uh, is something we've been warning about for decades. So uh, it's on the people who paid no attention to science fiction that they are gobsmacked today. Wow. Now, that's true, because, I mean, everybody was saying, you know, talking about how, I mean, yeah, I saw the Space Odyssey many years ago. And uh, yes, uh, HAL is definitely uh, quite advanced. And uh, that's uh, a good point. Um, and the and exact, I got to say just for a second, and the exact same debate right now uh, that we're having, well, is chat GPT conscious? Is it really self-aware? Will it become self-aware? was right there in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Dave Bowman says when he's interviewed by the BBC uh, in the film about this, as to whether Hal is truly conscious, I don't think anybody can really say. And that's where we're going to be with this AI question. How can I honestly say that you, Michael, or you, Cal, are actually conscious? All Descartes ever taught us was cogito, I think, therefore... Ergo sum, I am. It's not cagidamus ergo sumus. It's not we think, therefore we are. There's no way to confirm that anybody else has an inner life except yourself. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I know that uh, this technology, I mean, just like the, the computer was de developed as a sort of a part of a military state apparatus and then the internet, the same thing. And then as it, you know, it, as it expanded, it, it moved down to the, the lower levels and you know, each of us now have our own computers and so on. 
Uh, I, but, you know, the artificial intelligence as well, it was developed as part of a military uh, thing as well. Does that imply on some level that artificial intelligence will have, you know, a sort of a military application that, that that's built in or, or that it's emphasized by the people who have been leading the design and leading the charge? Cal, would you care to take that on or? Sorry, Mike, could you repeat the question? Okay. I, well, I was just talking about how the, uh, there, there was a military application, just like the computers and the internet were, uh, were developed as part of, uh, you know, a, a military state apparatus. And then it, it sort of went off to the, to the crowds and then maybe, you know, the same application holds for artificial intelligence. So does that in any way, uh, affect the way, the manner in which, uh, or the, the, the nature of artificial intelligence as it's, uh, being burned. Right. Born. I, uh, really interesting question. I'm glad I asked you to repeat it. Um, the, uh, I mean, in some technologies, if they're, if they start as military technologies, you will never even know that they're around. So I think that it's true that the origins of chat GPT, uh, had investors, uh, and it, literally the company is called OpenAI because the idea was that it would be public and it would be open source, and that Elon Musk was one of the investors, and that it would start as a public, you know, public for good project, and would, and I, there was even uh, there was even uh, the idea that it was going to be a not for profit, uh, and all that's gone out the window. I I think that uh, I think that it certainly changes. Uh, the essence of what something is, if its primary purpose uh, is to uh, kill uh, versus to help. Um, I, I, I use ChatGPT every day and it, it seems to be benign. But uh, then again, uh, any of these technologies could suddenly be used for a military purpose. The thing, the thing that uh, maybe I'll just throw something um, out there. The thing that worries me is that if you if you look at what... Uh, is being said about Boston Dynamics, how the next th the three generations down, the the robots, if you will, that run around that we have not seen yet are running in a they run at a blur, faster than you can see, right? And this is what this is what the rumor is. Uh, Elon Musk spreads that rumor as well, but I think it's probably got some merit. Uh, if you combine that with the AI that can think much faster than us. Are we are we looking at a uh, are we looking at a Fahrenheit 451 situation? Robert will probably have that hmm. reference off the top of his head faster. Were they called the the hounds? I believe that uh, were chasing people. That you've basically got a, a robot that's moving at a blur that's able to hunt down anyone anywhere anytime. These technologies are all very great as as long as they're in the hands of people that are. Uh, uh, that can be trusted and that are uh, have good intentions. But what technology has really ended up having good intentions? Even our phones, as you know, start with the good intentions of connecting us with the World Wide Web and being able to have a conversation with anyone anywhere on the earth. But what they really act as as a serotonin uh, um, addiction devices and keep us uh, addicted to our phone. I, I myself struggle with uh, the ADHD sort of qualities that come from being online all day and having my phone in front of my face. And, you know, uh, very, very healthy feeling. I have a very healthy feeling today because I spent the last two days camping in the woods with uh, 300 Cub Scouts and I feel very 
uh, very, you know, dis I was very disconnected from my phone. But like I said, those technologies start out as good technologies and the World Wide Web starts out as a good technology, but will it stay that way? Or, or is it being harnessed for ill will? So I think it does change. The origins do change whether the technology is going to be good or bad. Absolutely, and, Mike. And again, this isn't new. Um, 16 years ago, the, uh, the world's leading scientific journal is called simply Science. And in the November 16th, 2007 edition was devoted to robot ethics. And they actually asked me to write the guest editorial for the introduction to that issue, which I did do. Back then, the U.S. military was using AI to help guide drones to kill people. So there, yes, chat GPT is open and all of this is wonderful, but it would be naive to think that it is the only or conceivably the, even the most advanced AI engine on the planet. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Department of Defense has a budget measured in many hundreds of billions of dollars, way more than the capitalization of any of the public mm -hmm. companies that are out there involved in this. So there's no doubt in my mind that not only does the United States have extremely sophisticated military AI, but so does the Soviet, Russia, so does China, so do many other countries. And uh, absolutely, the fact that most of this research is classified and not subject to public oversight is indefinitely a, a red flag that we should be very concerned about. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You just joined us. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour. My guests today are Cal Sharif, uh, who is with the uh, Project White Card, and uh, the uh, famed Canadian science fiction writer and author, Robert J. Sawyer, who just spoke. Okay, um, I want to look at uh, things like in terms of how it's going to transform our society, our workplace. I think one of the things that we really have to think about is the fact that, uh, you know, what's this going to do to the labor source? I mean, uh, it's, you know, I mean, I just after this last month, you know, it was Mayworks and, you know, Solidarity Forever and everything like that. But you know, this technology is so sophisticated. I could see a lot of people losing their jobs as a result of it. And well, being Cal, Cal already said that in his introductory comments, that yeah. he used to take 100 artists at his gaming company to do what 20 do now. Uh, and these are, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a lawyer who had paid little attention to all of this, and he charges $500 an hour until he realized quite recently that most of the things that he charges $500 an hour for can just as easily be done for free by AI. So it's, you know, we used to think it was just, you know, blue collar workers who'd be replaced by automation. No, it's white collar workers and creative individuals who are suddenly finding themselves obsoleted out of their livelihood and what makes that worth living for them, their art. Yeah. Well, that 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 just you, you get getting the sense that we could end up with a, a kind of a a permanent 
underclass of of citizens because uh, you called know, Homo all... sapiens. It'll be all of us. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So, I... so I, you know, I. So here's the thing. I struggle with that, right? Because I wonder. You know, when I started this technology, uh, using technology, which was uh, back at the beginning of the internet in 1996, it's basically I was free because I could create uh, web pages and had wonderful jobs at Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and then started my own company. When I, when I started everything, it was like, I'm going to ride this technology all the way, learn web pages, everything. The world's going to explode. It empowered me, right? My art's out there, you know, because I can use Photoshop. My ideas are out there. Uh, I'm influencing education. I worked with NASA, I, just like Robert has. And, and I, it, it's an amazing thing, you know. So, so, so I wonder if conversely to the point that it may replace us is that maybe it replaces the people that don't use technology. That's, that's, I think there's a counter argument that if you understand how to harness the technology very, very well, then it could actually empower you. I know it's very, it's very um, perhaps, I don't think it's naive. I was going to use that word, but I don't think it is because it's always, technology has always empowered me. It certainly lets us do our job better now, uh, working with clients, delivering a better product. I, I can't say much about the lawyers though, and, you know, having having paid a lot for legal fees over the last 17 years of Project White Card, the ability for me to generate a memorandum of understanding in five minutes with ChatGPT that cost me $20 a month compared to $5,000 for the privilege of uh, having a two-minute conversation on the phone uh, is also empowering to me. You know, I, I think that um, I'm, I'm not really feeling very sorry for the lawyers, but maybe a lot of people don't. Um, so, uh, I'll pass it to Robert though, in case he has thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, yes, right now it's empowering because there are still things you can do that the AI can't do. Will that be true 18 months from now, 36, 72, the end of this decade, uh, right. by the time you're ready to retire or will all of it will be doable. And there's also the question of reaching an audience. Right now, I publish books, you publish games and so forth, and we're happy to have them out there with people consuming them. We're entering the, the era of bespoke fiction, bespoke games, bespoke movies. If I want to see uh, a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird starring Gregory Peck, mm. well, you know, nobody wants to see To Set a Watchman, the uh, Harper Lee uh, uh other novel because it was a terrible book made but let's get in the style of Horton Foote who wrote the screenplay with a likeness of Gregory Peck oh but I want him to drop all the f-bombs that uh, Samuel L. Jackson would if he was in the film too make me that film I'm gonna go get a cup of coffee when I come back show it to me yeah where and, and I may be the only person in the world who wants that film but I will get it so the idea that we're still going to be a handful of privileged creators. Uh, the very definition of celebrity is this, more people know who you are than you know, right? Uh, right? The idea that anybody is going to really be a celebrity when whatever content I want will be produced just for me at negligible cost, drawing on the work of the entire corpus of human output prior to me uh, means that I'm not sure that we're going to be leveraging anything anymore with a human as the fulcrum of the project. Wow. Well, 
Yeah, no, I, was, well, I was just going to say it's really it's fascinating. And just a little point on the screenplay thing for amusement. I'm having ChatGPT generate, you know, the original Star Trek scripts. Uh, I give it a seed of an idea, generate, you know, uh, Spock, uh, Spock, uh, Kirk, McCoy love triangle with with a scientist that's visiting on board who loves the singing species of alien, and it does a pretty good job at doing that. Today, and it will do a perfect yeah. job soon. Yes. Wow. And well, this is, you know, I besides all the other accolades you mentioned, very, very kindly, Michael, a member of the Writers Guild of America, the Scriptwriters Union, we are on strike right now, specifically over this issue. Should studios be able to say, you know, we've made a whole whack of Marvel movies or Star Wars movies or Star Trek episodes. We don't need those pesky writers. Why don't we just say, here's what the fans are asking for, you know, online in chat forums feed it into an engine, get it made, and cut those expensive, pesky, problematic, quarrelsome writers right out of the process. Wow. Well, we, they're building now 120 gigantic AI uh, data centers, you know, that they're, uh, and they're going to be building 120 more in 2024. Uh, this this is going through, you know. There, there's no way of, of saying no to it in in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I'm wondering now how how we ourselves are going to adapt to all of these things. I mean, do you see somewhere down the line in order to uh, to adapt that uh, maybe some sort of uh, artificial, you know, helping us connect with artificial intelligence, we may be forced to or maybe have the option uh, to uh, to take on that kind of surgery? I mean, are, are we looking at something that could ultimately alter our own uh, existence as a species? I, I, I just wanted to point out something really, really quickly or, or talk about something quickly. I, I did this thought experiment. And when you combine everything, that of like a CRISPR model of the idea that you can generate genetics and that the AI has already mapped all of human proteins that are possible and you combine it with everything else. It's like, uh, you know, I was talking to my cousin the other day, other days, an engineer and, and it's like, wh who's to say that like very near future that the AI isn't just going to come up with a life form. I think that it can, if it can detect human cancers in a way that we can't even see, and it knows all the proteins and all of the deoxyribonucleic acid, I like, if AI is going to be that advanced that it's going to generate its own form of human being or transhuman, uh, I mean, maybe the argument is already lost. I hate to be dismal about it, but I mean, maybe that's it. Mm. That would There's probably be more of a... An, it's, it's an existential threat. And, you know, we realized uh, as soon as the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and at that moment, it became public knowledge that uh, nuclear, atomic weapons existed. There was immediately government oversight, public government oversight, and worldwide con uh, consultation about arms limitation. As soon as we recognized that we had an existential threat on our hands, we dealt with it. There's no corresponding um, entity like an atomic uh, energy commission overlooking AI research in any government anywhere. And uh, so we're sort of saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, 
this one we're going to give a free pass on and just let it happen. There are things that can be done. For one, you can tax AI-created work in such a way that the economic incentive for using it disappears. You can do what Bill Gates said a number of years ago, which is for every job eliminated by automation, the employer should still have to contribute to the general public coffers an amount equal to the income tax that would have been paid by that employee. There are all kinds of regulatory structures that could be put in place to mitigate the economic uh, devastation that's going to occur from mass unemployment. And I really think, you know, uh, Stephen Hawking and others, Musk as well, used to say or still say, the only way to survive as the human race is to go into space. Also, the only way to survive as the human race, I really do think in this AI era, is UBI, universal basic income. There has to be a, a rethinking of our economic infrastructure that says, by virtue of being born, you are entitled to a decent standard of living provided by the government and that AI-fueled work will generate the, the money, it'll be taxed and generate the money that will make mm -hmm. that possible because jobs as we know them are evaporating already and will continue evapor mm -hmm. to evaporate at an enormous rate over the coming decades. Yeah. Well, it does, uh, that evokes the whole issue of, of, of class warfare. You know, there, there's, there, there's the, the elite class and then there's the, you know, the working class, but soon to be called the, uh, uh, I don't know, the, uh, useless class, what, what have you. And, and this, it seems as if this is going to strengthen the, the wealthier elites who, who are on top of this, getting all the funding going through, uh, and, and the rest of us are just sort of waiting for it to come along. I mean, are, 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 is this ultimately going to lead to something like, uh, you know, going from this form of, of capitalism we have right now to, you know, in, enhancing it to, to ultimately a feudalistic system? Well, I think a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of what goes on with, uh, you, you know, people use, you know, you're using a term called elite and, and you know, certainly uh, lawyers belong to that group. I think there's a phase change going on that will change the strata of society. But I think a lot of that society that you speak about already exists and they live in, in, in ways that we and we don't see them. They're out there doing that. Um, I really I really worry about the uh, the future of jobs to uh, I think that the idea of having a, a universal basic income is very good. Although, you know, the poor lawyers are going to need to, to buy food somehow. Uh, but uh, I also, I also think that it might be all of the human race that might be becoming, you know, set, running in second place. This is like what the real worry, this is what the real worry for me is, is that uh, if we're, if we're not controlling this, uh, you know, to put, to, to put on that hat, if we don't control the progress of AI, another country will. And so that you've got an AI, essentially an AI arms race, right? The cliche. But, mm -hmm. but what will they do with the AI? Will they stop? You know, they haven't stopped at cloning. Will they stop? Will they stop by creating uh, the next, the next version of, 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 uh, you know, uh, of not homo sapiens, something else. 
Mm. And that already, I, you could feel kind of the existential dread when I'm writing, and I used to write scripts a year ago, and I'm not writing them as much. And it's like, why am I not writing them as much? What's happening? Is the AI actually better at me at writing? That's what <laughs> I worry. About. I do actually worry about it because it's like I'm writing technical stuff, but the AI seems to be better at it. I feel a little bit let down. Honestly, well, you're right, Cal. I feel like a, a very well-read human being, but I haven't read even a hundredth of one percent of all the books that have written by the human race. ChatGPT has read all of them. When Google went ahead and in flagrant violation of copyright, scanned entire libraries worth of books and digitized them, uh, they were providing the corpus of human knowledge that eventually was co-opted by AI researchers. Uh, and when you look at Amazon, Jeff Bezos may not have had this in mind when he started way back in 1995 with customer reviews of books originally now of every product. Now AI knows exactly what we like and what we don't like and what flaws we see in this and what we enjoyed about that. So when you ask if I, you know, I like to think I can write a heartbreaking scene of emotional angst between a mother and a, well, you can just ask chat GPT because it knows every book that has ever had such a scene in it. And thanks to Amazon and Goodreads and other places where all this stuff is reviewed, not to mention Publishers Weekly and Library Journal and so forth, how these things are received. Ah, this author tried it and it came off corny. That author tried it and it's a tearjerker and will be able to generate, as Cal said, not just as good as Robert J. Sawyer, but infinitely better than Robert J. Sawyer because it's better read than any human being can possibly ever be. I, I was just going to ask, do you think Frank Herbert uh, anticipated this? Yes, the Butlerian Jihad in Dune yes. was, uh, you know, the underpinning of the Dune universe is that early on humanity said, F this, we are not going to have artificial intelligence, that human dignity requires us to do things ourselves. And we may want to expand our minds, the mm -hmm. guild navigators and so forth, the mentats in Dune and expanded human psychological potential. But the idea that we were going to cede territory, C-E-D-E, -E, to mm -hmm. give over territory to machines that rightfully belongs to human beings was something that he had in the backstory of the Dune universe, an uprising named after a man named Butler, the Butlerian Jihad, that wiped out artificial intelligence. And, you know, I, I, I'm friends with Mike Lazaridis, co-founder of Research in Motion, who uh, went on to be named BlackBerry, the inventors of the BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. And I once asked Mike what he thought about having their headquarters in Waterloo, Ontario, because they're surrounded by Mennonites, who old order Mennonites, who will never use his products. And he said, are you kidding? I love them. They are the backup plan for humanity. When this civilization crumbles and falls because of its over-reliance on technology, they will sail on through just fine. Well, Herbert said that. Let's all to some degree, not necessarily be Luddites, they travel in interstellar spaceships, uh, but let's all be to some degree self-reliant instead of letting machines do everything for us. 
I wanted to get onto to a, you know at least one other aspect of this, and it seems to be the main driver of the current pause they're having, and, and that's the whole idea that of the possibility, the possibility that this could lead to uh, a kind of, of of human extinction, essentially, where the uh, artificial intelligence gets so profound that they might do things in such a way that uh, that ultimately right. leads to our own termination. Is that a concern that you two have as well? Well, you know, I was speaking earlier about uh, about how the fact that our phones are, uh, you know, have made us addicts, and uh, obviously there's been AI behind uh, what you see all along. I know even right now my Google phone is listening to me. I don't know why I let it listen to me, but it's listening to me. And if I talk about something, I'll see a topic uh, related to that, maybe something I can purchase. But I think that. If the AI is operating at such a deep level, like a deep, deep ocean, that it could potentially motivate the human race to do something just in very, very subtle ways. It's like the reverse of, I put up, I'm creating a brain, uh, I'm, 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 I'm operating in, a, in, an, in an operating room, I'm trying to remove uh, cancerous cells. I use the AI to tell me where they are. I don't know how it did it, but it can tell me and not subject to introspection. And then I remove those cells as well and an actual real case of what's going on right now. Um, I think the AI would be perfectly capable of directing, <laughs> directing the human race. If it, it's not, what is it now, Michael? Last time I checked, I, we didn't look up this number, it was 200 million people within the first month were using ChatGPT. How many hundreds of millions of people does it take for the AI to say, hey, let's get them to do this or let's get them to do that. I mean, there's so much potential for good, but like I said, is that how it's being used? Look at how easily just individual human beings have warped reality and got mindless followers to do exactly what they want. Donald Trump in the United States is a classic example. He's po he doesn't tell the truth. He lies constantly. He exaggerates. He uh, claims things that simply demonstrably are false. And yet, no matter what he does, his base is not deterred and continues to believe because he has honed his line of rhetoric so precisely that a certain segment of the United States, a very large segment, it turned out, is willing to follow precisely uh, what he uh, wants them to do regardless of the truth of what he is saying. Now, that's Donald Trump, who is, uh, although he calls himself a mm -hmm. genius, is not. Now, imagine an AI who knows everything about you, Michael, every post you've ever made, every book you've ever read because it's seen your library checkout history, your Goodreads history, your Amazon purchase history, everything uh, you've ever said or done that's been recorded, and then wants to convince you that the only intelligent thing for you to do right now today is to go to the office of the president of the University of Winnipeg and put a bullet between his eyes. It could craft the exact argument that you need to hear that with the exact false citations that you would need to have your reason to believe that, my God, the only way I can save the rest of the students is to stop this madman, the president of the university, this instant, right now, I'm galvanized. I have to go and do it. That's the level of psychological opponent you're going to be dealing with. 
uh, mm -hmm. way more effective than Donald Trump and targeted individually, not at a swath of the demographic, uh, demographics, but at you personally. And then a different argument for me for why I have to go and stop Michael Walsh. Hmm. So couple well, couple that with the fact well, that the AI. Yeah. So if you couple that with the fact, you know, uh, on another front, the AI might be actually developing uh, DNA models and protein models that it could use one day, and from a biological point of view, and then a technical point of view, it's got it's got uh, robots and so on, and then from a psychological point of view, it seems like the threat is pretty, it's pretty real. I mean, I know that. The letter that went out estimated the threat of AI was around a 10% uh, yeah. threat to the human race. But I, I think it's probably quite higher than that. Hmm. Well, I, I, I just think of all these science fiction scenarios which have incorporated artificial intelligence. And I mean, you had things like the, uh, the, the, the Terminator from uh, the, uh, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, run and the, uh, the Borg from Star Trek. Um, I don't know. Is there is there, there a certain there, yeah. model of 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 this uh, activism or of this uh, artificial intelligence that's that's maybe more inclined to which we're more inclining to go? If I, if I could put it, there's three standard science fictional scenarios. You name two of them: the Borg, artificial intelligence will assimilate us; uh, the Terminator, artificial intelligence will eliminate us. And the matrix, artificial intelligence, will enslave us. There are, however, in game theory, four quadrants, not uh, in, in any uh, payoff matrix. There's uh, AI wins, we lose. AI loses, we win. We both lose. That is something that uh, we do either to wipe them out or to stop us, destroys the whole world. And the one I explore in my trilogy, Wake, Watch, and Wonder, the win-win quadrant in the mm -hmm. payoff matrix. And it doesn't get a lot of attention. We are at that moment right now where we have to, where we will be deciding which one of those four outcomes occurs. The most likely one, unfortunately at the moment, is AI wins, we lose. Uh, the one that we have a chance still maybe for 36 months, three years, maybe for a little longer than that, to fight for is the one where we win and they win, where it is a symbiosis and we come out better for it. But we have to be proactive right now. We should have been. It's like, you know, one another branch of science fiction unrelated to this is alternate history. Imagine if Al Gore had actually uh, won the presidency uh, rather than George W. Bush in the year 2000. Instead mm -hmm. of us facing the existential climate change threat right now, uh, we might have actually have averted that. Instead of half of Canada being on fire today, uh, we might have averted that if we'd acted earlier. Well, this is that point. This is that inflection point in history. Today, tomorrow, next week, 2023, we have to act if we want to have that win-win or alternatively, humanity wins and AI loses, also an acceptable outcome. Okay. Well, we know how dre dreadfully slow politics is. Uh, what, what would say, can I ask a question, Michael? Is it okay if I sure. ask a question? What sure, would some of the signs be uh, that we're entering a win-win? Um, what does winning look like? 
because we <laughs> talked about what losing looks like. We're extinct. But what does yeah. winning look like? Does it look like Elon Musk's neural link? You know, that he said we have an output input output problem. The only way to solve this is to uh, is to directly connect uh, computers to our brains. Well, you asked Michael, but I'll say, yeah, you know, uh, I'm the only one where, as I look at the video of the three of us here, who's wearing eyeglasses, you guys might be wearing contacts, but I also have hearing aids, right? I am much better off because of technological um, benefits that, you know, didn't exist uh, mm -hmm. in the ancient past. And, uh, you know, I don't have Parkinson's and I don't have Alzheimer's and I hope I will never get them. But already we are treating Parkinson's with implants, neural implants. We may treat Alzheimer's with neural implants. And honestly, as a writer, I would be very happy to have a much better memory. I, as yes. I said, I've read an awful lot of books. How many of them could I actually write out? A thousand mm -hmm. words out of the hundred thousand words, even a point form points from most of the books I read. The answer is maybe one percent of them. So, yes, if somebody could give me a neural technology that let me interface with the World Wide Web with me controlling the flow, the direction of flow, that is that it is a pull technology to use the computer word, a P-U-L-L, I pull information not a push technology where Google decides to, or Amazon decides to push advertising ideas into my head. Uh, I think that would be uh, absolutely a boon and a win-win. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell you, honestly, I'm a little bit stumped by the question. I, uh, I, I didn't really have that uh, uh, understanding, but I think that, you know, we've got to have some sort of uh, a, a way of, of, of overlooking the whole situation and maybe deciding, you know, basically put trying to put some sort of restrictions on, on what uh, the, the artificial intelligence is going to be able to do and, and accomplish and sort out. Uh, I think we're out of time now, but I really want to thank you both for uh, you sharing your thoughts with our, our listeners. Uh, Cal Sharif and, and uh, Robert Sawyer, thank you so much for joining me and, uh, well, maybe good to have you back on again at some point. Thank you so much. It was An a absolute pleasure. pleasure. Cal, Michael, yeah. thank you. Nice okay. to meet you guys. Okay. Nice to meet, uh, see Michael again and to uh, meet you, Robert. Okay. Wonderful, Cal. Cal. We spoke to Cal Sharif, the head of a technology company called Project White Card and Canadian science fiction author Robert J. Sawyer. Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.